All right. Y'all ready to get into the Gospel of John? Good. Because that's where we're going to be. We're going to be in chapter 3, so go ahead and turn to John's Gospel, chapter 3. And this morning, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. Last time we looked at the final paragraph in chapter 2, that was a bit of a transition from the scene in the temple to the scene we're going to behold in this chapter. It sets the stage for this chapter, this encounter with Jesus and Nicodemus. And that last paragraph in chapter 2, it really gave us an overall assessment of the Jews' response to Jesus during his first visit to Jerusalem. And as we saw in the previous passage in verses 13 to 22, the passage before that last paragraph, Jesus had gone to the capital city with his disciples to celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This was his first visit to Jerusalem since he began his ministry as the Messiah, and it was in the temple precinct that he chose to begin his public ministry to the people of Israel. And he did this by single-handedly shutting down the business that was being conducted by the animal merchants and money changers in the court of the Gentiles and driving them all out of the temple precinct. That left quite a first impression, wouldn't you think? Thus he set himself up in opposition to the religious leaders and the temple authorities who had allowed the temple to be turned into a place of business. And then we then saw in verses 23 to 25 that after this confrontation in the temple, Jesus remained in the city. And he was performing miraculous signs in the presence of the people. And although John says that many believed in his name, when they saw him performing these signs, they believed in his name. John also tells us that their belief was only superficial. It was superficial. Jesus knew this because he knew the thoughts and intentions of their hearts. Therefore, John tells us that Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. He knew that they were not trusting in him for who he truly is and seeking to follow after him on his terms. Now, in our passage this morning, we are going to be introduced to a man who is one of these people who had witnessed the miraculous signs of Jesus and responded positively by believing in his name, but who lacked saving belief. John gives us an account of this man's interaction with Jesus in verses 1 through 15 of chapter 3. And this morning, as I said, we're going to look at the first half of that interaction in verses 1 through 8. As usual, we will start by reading the full text And since the last paragraph in chapter 2 really sets this passage up, we're going to lead with that. So we'll read from verse 23 of chapter 2 through verse 8 of chapter 3. 
Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirits. So what kind of man was Nicodemus? Well, as you can see in verse 1, he was a man of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were an elite and influential religious party among the Jews. They were considered to be experts in the scriptures and in the Mosaic law in particular. They promoted a strict body of man-made rules, that is, the tradition of the elders, the traditions of the elders, that went far beyond the commands of God in matters such as tithing, Sabbath-keeping, and ritual purity. They were legalists. They believed that righteousness could be attained through law-keeping. They believed one was ultimately justified before God, not by faith, but by works. Not only was Nicodemus a Pharisee, we also read that he was a, what, ruler of the Jews, That means he was a member of the high council in Jerusalem, also referred to as the Sanhedrin. This council was composed of high priests, elders, and scholars who are referred to as scribes, and it met under the presidency of the ruling high priest. It was the highest governing authority among the Jews, not only in religious matters, but also in civil matters as well to the extent that these did not encroach on the authority of the Roman governor. Therefore, Nicodemus was a very prominent and influential leader among the Jews. And if you look ahead at verse 10, you'll see that Jesus referred to him as the teacher of Israel. We read in verse 2, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
Nicodemus was one of the many in Jerusalem who had witnessed Jesus performing miraculous signs. And here we see that he, along with some of his other colleagues, believed that Jesus was a teacher sent and empowered by God. The signs were obvious proof of this. Nicodemus, therefore, wanted to speak with Jesus personally. The fact that he came to Jesus in this way indicates a level of sincerity and humility on his part. Remember who he is, a ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee, a a chief Pharisee, if you will. But he wants to come and speak with Jesus personally. And in the eyes of most people, Jesus is this, this preacher from Galilee, unschooled. But he's performing miraculous signs. So Nicodemus goes to him. Nicodemus did not send a formal delegation to interrogate Jesus as the Pharisees had done with John the Baptist. Rather, he personally came to Jesus being convinced that Jesus was a teacher who had been sent by God. No doubt he had a number of questions he wanted to ask him. However, whatever questions he had in mind to ask, he didn't get to those. Because after he stated his belief that Jesus was a teacher from God, Jesus immediately began to instruct him. Nicodemus had expressed his view of Jesus. And instead of bringing him further along in that view, Jesus made a declaration that would challenge Nicodemus's view of himself. What did he say? Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, in the previous passage, we read John's statement that Jesus knew all people and that he knew what was in man. When Nicodemus came to him then, he knew what was on his mind and what he was desiring to know. And we see that reflected in his statement to Nicodemus. He brings up the kingdom of God. Nicodemus didn't say anything, but clearly he was thinking about it. Jesus brings up the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God refers to the everlasting kingdom that Israel's Messiah will establish upon this earth when he comes to finally deliver and restore the nation of Israel and begin to reign in righteousness from Jerusalem over the entire world. The Jews had been waiting for the coming of of the promised king, the Christ, the Messiah, and for the establishment of this promised kingdom, as it is foretold in the scriptures. And one of the most notable depictions of the coming of God's kingdom is found in the book of Daniel. Daniel ministered during the time of Israel's 70-year captivity in Babylon, Israel's northern kingdom had already fallen to the Assyrian Empire over a century earlier, and its inhabitants were scattered 
among the nations. And in Daniel's day, the southern kingdom had fallen to Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian Empire. And the people were taken into captivity, which God promised would just be limited to 70 years and he'd bring them back. But in that period of captivity, during that time, or at that point, the kingdom of Israel had come to an end. The southern kingdom was the last vestige of the kingdom of Israel, and that kingdom fell to Babylon. So the kingdom of Israel at that time, the time of Daniel, had come to an end, and God revealed through Daniel that Israel would be subjected to Gentile domination until the coming of his kingdom, at which point he would restore their nation and their kingdom. So we read in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2, we read this, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And then in chapter 7 of Daniel, God also had revealed this. Through visions to Daniel, Daniel's relating these visions, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is the coming kingdom of God. There are other passages that give a fuller depiction of what this kingdom will be like when it is established on the earth. We could look at Isaiah in the book of Isaiah, and I'm going to turn there. I'll just read from that because I want you to have the same perspective of the kingdom that Nicodemus would have, that, that same anticipation, that same, that same understanding of this literal earthly kingdom that God was going to bring. So let's paint a picture of this hope of Israel, the coming king and the coming kingdom. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 14, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This is speaking of the Messiah, the coming Messiah. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, 
and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. You see the conditions of this kingdom? It's a reversal of the curse. Worldwide peace, even among the animals. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. God will gather his people back into the promised land. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Again, remember the kingdom of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, and now they will be unified as one kingdom again. No longer will there be this hostility and division among them. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. They will be restored to a position of prominence. They will have victory over their enemies, and they'll be led by the king of kings, their Messiah. And you saw the conditions of this kingdom. And then in Micah, just the one other one we're going to look at, Micah chapter 4, listen to this. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid." For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, Jerusalem, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now that is the hope of the coming kingdom of God. That is what 
God had revealed and promised to Israel. So we have Nicodemus, who certainly is familiar with what God had said he's going to bring about, the restoration of Israel, the restoration of the kingdom, the coming kingdom of God, ruled under the Messiah, Israel's restoration to their place of prominence as God's people. This is the kingdom of God that is to come, and the Jews were eagerly waiting for it and for the arrival of their king, the Christ. They wanted to be delivered from Gentile rule, and in Jesus' day, that's the Roman Empire, and they wanted to see their enemies destroyed, and they wanted to see their kingdom restored. And what they were seeing that heightened their expectations in that day was John the Baptist, as I've mentioned before, John the Baptist, the first prophet to be raised up in Israel after over 450 years of silence from God towards his people who was telling the people to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord and to repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God was at hand. And then there was Jesus, who had just single-handedly cleansed the temple, who was preaching to the people and performing miraculous signs in their midst. You can see how high the anticipation is now. The kingdom of God is at hand. And it is likely that Nicodemus, recognizing that Jesus must be a teacher sent by God, assumed that Jesus could give him definitive answers regarding the coming of God's kingdom and Israel's restoration. He might have wanted to ask, is now the time? What will happen next? What should we expect? When will the Messiah reveal himself? What is your role? What is your message for us? It seems that Nicodemus, as one of the most prominent leaders in Israel, wanted to be prepared for what would be the most momentous event in the nation's history. He must have assumed that he, along with the nation's other leaders, would have an important role to play. We need to be ready. We're the leaders, so clearly we have an important role. Prepare me. But then Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, the, the Greek word that means again, and is translated that way repeatedly as it's used throughout the New Testament, is palin. Not pollen, but, you know, palin. That's the Greek word that means again. However, this is not the word that John uses here in the phrase that is translated as born again. The Greek word that is translated as again here is anothen, which means from above, from above. There are a couple instances in the New Testament where anothen is used to mean from the beginning, but in every other occurrence, except one which itself is debatable, the meaning is from above, from above. And outside of this passage, there are only three other times John uses anothen, because he uses it twice in this passage. Later in his gospel, in verse 31 in chapter 3, he uses it this way, he who comes from above is above all. He who comes 
from above. Anothen is right there, is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. The word appears again in chapter 19. Jesus answered him, that is Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. And then later in that chapter, we read at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, but the tunic, the soldiers are dividing up his belongings, his, clo- his garments, and they have the tunic, and it says the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom, from above to the bottom. And I just wanted to show you that, to show you that Jesus' statement to Nicodemus in John's gospel, the way John uses this word, it would be best translated as follows, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the uh, NET Bible chooses to put it that way. And even in your Bible, in this in the ESV, usually they'll have a footnote and they'll say, or from above. They chose to put again in the text. But from above is what he said. This is not what Nicodemus expected to hear. By making such a statement, Jesus was indicating that Nicodemus would not see the kingdom of God if he remained as he was. And what was he? An Israelite a descendant of Abraham and a member of God's chosen nation. More than that, he was a devout Pharisee. He had devoted his life to keeping the law of God and holding to the religious traditions of the elders. He even had advanced to becoming a member of the high council in Jerusalem and was thus a ruler of the Jews and a prominent teacher of the people. And yet, Jesus told him he needed, he needed to be born from above. His works, his achievements, and his religious devotion throughout the many years of his life, he was an old man, did not earn him a place in God's coming kingdom. Jesus essentially told him that he must become a new man. That is, he must be made a new man. What Nicodemus needed in order to be saved from the coming judgment and to see the kingdom of God was not something that he himself could bring about, but only something that God could bring about. The source of this birth is from above. It is brought about by God. It is God giving spiritual life to the spiritually dead sinner so that the sinner is made alive and radically transformed from within with the result that he truly understands and believes the word of God and humbly sees himself as a wretched sinner who has been saved by grace alone and by faith lives for the glory of God. That's the result of God's work upon the sinner and causing him to be born from above. Nicodemus did not see himself rightly. 
He was in denial about the reality of his own spiritual need. He thought he was in good standing with God because he was, first of all, a Jew, and more than that, he was a Jew who took the law of God and the religious traditions of his elders seriously. His self-confidence before God was thus derived from his lifelong religious devotion and his continual effort in leading a disciplined and self-controlled life. However, the truth that one must be born from above indicates that all such devotion, all such effort, amounted to nothing. One commentator adds this. He says, spiritual birth is something one undergoes, not something he produces. As our efforts had nothing to do with our natural conception and birth, So, in a similar way, but on a far higher plane, regeneration is not a work of ours. What a blow for Nicodemus. His being a Jew gave him no part in the kingdom. His being a Pharisee, esteemed holier than other people, availed him nothing. His membership in the Sanhedrin and his fame as one of its scribes went for naught. This rabbi from Galilee, Jesus, this rabbi from Galilee, calmly tells him that he is not yet in the kingdom. He doesn't have an in. All on which he had built his hopes throughout a long, arduous life, here sank into ruin and became a little worthless heap of ashes. Unless he attains this mysterious new birth, he shall, even he, shall not see the kingdom. End quote. Now in verse 4, we see that Nicodemus was perplexed and unsettled by what Jesus said. He was perplexed because Jesus' statement contradicted his own worldview. That is, his understanding of God and man and salvation that determined how he ordered his life. He was perplexed by the claim that he, as an old man, had to experience some kind of new birth in order to see the kingdom of God. And he was unsettled because Jesus' statement implied that he was not right with God but needed saving It implied that his lifelong religious devotion and efforts to obey God's law amounted to nothing before God. It implied that he could do nothing to save himself. It implied that he was not a good person and that he needed to be radically transformed. The natural person who is devoid of spiritual life and inclined towards rebellion against God and is inclined towards glorification of self, does not want to hear that. The natural person who is a slave to sin pushes back against that. We read in verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old, when he's an old man? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? As we can see in this response... Nicodemus was surprised by Jesus' statement. He himself was an old man and a member of God's covenant people and chosen nation, and Jesus was speaking of some kind of new birth as being absolutely necessary 
for him to see the kingdom of God. He believed he was already in good standing with God, so he was surprised to be told that he needed to be born from above. What's more is that he could not comprehend the concept of a second birth. He couldn't couldn't wrap his mind around that. He wanted Jesus to explain what he meant because the thought seemed to him not only impossible but absurd. So in response to his bewilderment, Jesus said, Jesus answered, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, and there's no article there, so it could just be born of water and Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. There are several instances in Scripture where water imagery is used figuratively to refer to the purifying and life-giving work of the Holy Spirit. And these are what Jesus was alluding to, these, these passages of Scripture where water refers to the purifying and life-giving work of the Spirit. It's used in that way. God refers to himself as the fountain of living water. And when God spoke of pouring out his spirit, the result depicted was a powerful transformation through cleansing and the impartation of life. We see that in the scriptures. And this outpouring of the spirit upon the people of Israel was something that God said he would do in the latter days at the time of their national restoration and the coming of his kingdom. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 44, this is what God revealed through the prophet Isaiah. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I've chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. So you see, he's not speaking about just sending rain. He's speaking about sending a spirit upon the people that they might truly become his. Worship and faith and obedience from the heart. Spiritual transformation. Throughout Israel's history, they were collectively a stiff-necked and stubborn people, and they repeatedly rebelled and turned away from God. And this was because they had evil, unbelieving hearts. The problem was their heart. The problem was within them. They were slaves to sin. So no matter how many wondrous works of God they witnessed, man, they witnessed a lot. No matter how much they beheld the righteous standard set forth in God's law, no matter how much they were taught and warned and exhorted to love the Lord their God and to fear Him and to walk in His ways so that it might go well with them, 
they would continue to resist God's revealed will for them and rebel unless God transformed them from the inside, unless he gave them spiritual life. And by the way, that's not just Israel's problem, right? That is everyone. Everyone is born into this world in sin. They have the bent towards rebellion against God. And so no matter how much on the outside happens, witness the wondrous works of God. Behold, the righteous law of God, the standard set forth, His word. And they read it and study it, all that. Unless that heart is changed, there will be a resistance to God, a rebellion against God. They cannot do what is pleasing to God unless God changes them. So that was the case with Israel, and the same is true of every one of you. Every one of you. This was the need Jesus was speaking of when he said that in order to see and enter the kingdom of God, one must be born from above, born of water and spirit. Another passage that we certainly must consider that specifically mentions water and spirit together when speaking of God's future transformative and regenerative work upon his people is in Ezekiel. It also provides one of the most explicit descriptions of this saving work of God. In Ezekiel 36, we read this, God's promise through the prophet to the people of Israel, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And that promise was to Israel collectively that God would do this to them as a people. But certainly it spoke to the individual need as well. Jesus' statement in John 3, 5 fits right in with the testimony of this and other similar passages in Scripture. He's not saying anything that's completely new. And he's talking to a teacher of the law, a teacher of the Word of God, a Pharisee who studies the Scriptures. There should be a connection made, but there's not. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is actually has been said before in the scriptures. One commentator in regarding this passage in Jesus' statement about water and spirit, and again, reasserting this need to be born from above, writes this, in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, water and spirit come together so forcefully, the first to signify cleansing from impurity, and the second to depict the transformation of the heart that will enable people to follow God wholly. In short, Born of water and spirit signals a new begetting, a new birth that cleanses and renews the eschatological cleansing and renewal promised by the Old Testament prophets. True, the prophets tended to focus on the corporate results, the restoration of the nation, 
but they also anticipated a transformation of individual hearts. No longer hearts of stone, but hearts that hunger to do God's will. It appears that individual regeneration is presupposed. Apparently, Nicodemus had not thought of the Old Testament passages this way. Again, that's all right. It's not that he didn't know these passages. just wasn't thinking of them in that way. wasn't understanding them correctly. If Nicodemus was like some other Pharisees, he was too confident of the quality of his own obedience to think he needed much repentance, let alone to have his whole life cleansed and his heart transformed to be born again. End quote. Back in our text of John, Jesus follows up his statements to Nicodemus with simple reasoning. Verse 6 we read, Jesus say this, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. All of mankind is descended from Adam and Eve who both fell into a state of total corruption when they sinned against God. They became, and the moment they sinned against God, they became spiritually dead and were severed from fellowship with God. And their corruption gave them a natural bent towards evil. And that corrupt nature was passed on to all their descendants including us, all of mankind. That corruption was passed on so that all men are spiritually dead from birth. They need spiritual life, but they cannot impart spiritual life to themselves. They need God to give them spiritual life and to bring them into fellowship with him if they are to enjoy everlasting life with him in his coming kingdom. Only the Spirit of God can produce truly spiritual people. You have babies, and they turn out just like you. They're born sinners. They're born in corruption. They're born with a bent towards rebellion against God. But the Spirit of God, those He gives life to, become truly spiritual people who are brought into fellowship with God and are made spiritually alive. And you would think that statement, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That's plain and simple reasoning. Which is why Jesus said to Nicodemus in verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, You all must be born from above. By the way, that's plural. You all must be born from above. The you there is plural. In other words, Jesus isn't just saying this about Nicodemus. He's saying, You all, yes, all of you Pharisees, all of you who are members of the Sanhedrin, rulers of the Jews, everyone, all of you, the whole people of the nation, the rest of the people, along with you who are the elite, you all need to be born from above. And then Jesus provided an illustration for Nicodemus. Perhaps it was a bit breezy that night. And while they were 
conversing indoors, they could hear the sound of the wind outside. It's possible that this prompted Jesus to add this illustration. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear, you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You cannot see the wind. Can you see the wind? You can't. Nor can you control it. It blows where it wishes. Nor can you fully comprehend it. You can't trace out the beginning and end of its activity. I mean, yeah, you put your finger in it. Okay. Oh, it's, it's kind of an east wind. Great. But you can't trace out its source and its destination, the beginning and end of its activity. And yet... You know when it comes upon you, you become aware of its presence and activity because, hey, if you're indoors, you hear its sound. Jesus says, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. There are different ways people understand the connection he's making. I don't think Nicodemus is denying, having trouble denying or with the reality of the Spirit is at work. And you can't see him, but you got to accept that he does this stuff. And yeah, I think he believes that. But Jesus makes a statement not about the Spirit. He says, so it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. And I think he's trying to continue to help him understand what this new birth does, the effect of this new birth. So I would suggest that when he's saying it's everyone, so is everyone who's born of the Spirit, um, it's, it's carrying off of his statement that you must be born from above. And the idea is that hey, this is beyond your ability. That's clear. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. And if he comes upon you and gives you spiritual life, you will know it. You cannot see him. You cannot control him. You cannot comprehend the beginning and end of his activity. We know he's working in the world, but we don't fully comprehend everything that he's doing. But if you have been born of him, you will perceive that he is at work in you. As Paul had mentioned in Romans, the Spirit himself will bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So we're going to pick up the second half of this interaction. But hopefully the point is clear. We're not just talking about Nicodemus's problem. This is the problem of every man. We are born in the flesh, born in corruption, born in sin, and there is nothing we can do. No amount of discipline, no amount of religious devotion, no kind of experience that we can try to obtain. Nothing can bring us to God. There, we are not saved by works, by effort. It is solely by grace, and it requires God to come down and change us, transform us, give us spiritual life. And unless he does that, you will not see the kingdom of God. You will die, as Jesus said, in your sins and remain separated from God forever. And the wrath of God remains on you because of your sins. Let's pray.
Father, I just ask that you would help us to truly take these words of our Lord to heart. The reality that we cannot make ourselves right with you. We cannot clean ourselves up. We cannot obey perfectly or enough. We cannot be good enough. We are not good. That we need and we are dependent upon, solely upon, your gracious activity, your gracious work of salvation, of giving us life. And pray that we would take this to heart as we examine ourselves and test ourselves to see if we truly are indeed in the faith or if, we're, if our confidence is really in the things that we do or in superficial things that don't convey, indicate any uh, powerful work in our lives or transformation, but are just rule-keeping. Help us as we search our own hearts and examine our own state before you. And we pray that you would help us keep this in mind and take it to heart when we are proclaiming the gospel to others, that they will reject it, that we, we can't change them, and that's what needs to happen. But we are messengers of the truth, the means you have appointed by which you choose to impart life to them that they might believe that truth. But unless you cause them to be born from above, they will reject it. Help us to remember this so that we don't think wrongly of evangelism, that it's something we must say in a particular way or a particular method, that we must somehow win them into the kingdom. We cannot unless you save them. And Father, also help us to keep this in mind, this truth, when we are interacting with other professing Christians who seem to have no evidence of your saving work in their lives, because it doesn't matter how much we profess if there is no changed life, you have not caused them to be born from above. Help us to see these things rightly. And we rejoice in you because we cannot make ourselves right before you, but yet you graciously chose to give us life and to reconcile us to yourself through the atoning work of your Son and granted us forgiveness of sins. And now you have caused us to walk in newness of life. You've given us your Spirit and we have a hope and a joy and a peace that comes from his presence in us and the life you give. Help us to keep all of this in mind as we commemorate our Lord's sacrifice on our behalf, the cost that he paid to purchase us, to make this possible that we might be redeemed. Thank you, Father. We pray for your blessing upon us. Help us to continue to grow in our knowledge of you and our love for you and our love for your people. Amen.